0: And we're good. Okay, so... Um, tonight's session will discuss the history of Jerusalem in the era from the middle of World War I up until the end of World War II. Um, during the uh, First World War, so the Ottoman Empire was very nervous about its fate. And as I mentioned at the end of the uh, week se- uh, two weeks ago session... There were Jews who favored the Ottoman side in the war, notably Ben-Gurion at first, until such time as they realized that the, uh, the, the Turks were vicious and would kill everyone. And they killed the Armenians, they could kill the Jews. And they were not going to budge on is- issues of Jewish nationalism. In fact, that uh, it would be a major blunder to think that they would at all switch their policy in favor of the Jews. And so the shift was towards the British side, most notably with Chaim Weitzman, but also with Vladimir Jabotinsky, uh, and and eventually David Ben-Gurion himself as well. So when it comes to the fate of Jerusalem, the British were negotiating its fate, even before they controlled the city. They were negotiating the fate of Eretz Israel more broadly, but specifically Jerusalem was under discussion. So in the Hussein McMahon correspondence, which was the correspondence between the British and the nascent Arab nationalist movement. The British offered uh, concessions, so to speak, if you could call them concessions, that there would be an Arab state one day that would have greater Syria and Arabia under its domain. But noticeably missing from that discussion was the fate of the coastal areas, Notably, Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was left out of the promises made by the British to the Arabs. What about the promises that the British and the French made to each other in the sykes Pico Agreement? So that agreement, which, of course, came to pass in the sense that after the war was over, the French would control Syria and Lebanon and the British would control Transjordan, Iraq and, and Palestine. Uh, it, it was not something that was implemented vis-a-vis Jerusalem. The French had very serious claims over Jerusalem. How so? What's the French connection to to Jerusalem? Dating back to the Crusader period, the French kings were identified as the king of Jerusalem and sometimes actually had it during the Crusader uh, kingdoms, uh, you know, before Saladin and then after briefly uh, when they retook it. So the French have... 700-year-old claims for the holy city, but it's not going to be their armed forces that are occupying the holy places. And if you don't have boots on the ground, too bad. You know, whatever claims you're going to make are going to be ignored. And ultimately, uh, when after the Allenby takes the city and Ronald Storrs is made the, the uh, military governor of Jerusalem, when Mister Picot tries to push his, his issue, he is rebuffed completely. Okay, but in the meantime, what was the, what was the situation? With Syria and Iraq, I mean, was it because the British, like with Aden and other Middle Eastern worldwide countries, yeah. had them under their thumb, or was there something like an Ottoman entity in these other countries too? The the you mean after the the World now, War? as they're parsing out. Oh no no so the British have uh, uh, you know spies and special forces units that are making their way across the Middle East, grabbing this or that spot. Not massive amounts of troops like you would have in continental Europe, but they had some forces here and there. And as the Ottoman regime is collapsing, they're looking to plant their flag with whatever minimal force they have here and there and everywhere. Although their major force would be coming out of Egypt up into Palestine. uh, And eventually by the end of the war, by November of eighteen. Getting to the Syrian border. Okay. Yeah, but they could lie. But but, but they could lie. They, they, could, they could instigate an Arab revolt and then and then renege on promises. Okay. So Ahmed Jamal is the slaughterman, the governor of Syria, which includes Eretz Israel, and he's a tough guy. He's threatening to deport the entire Jewish population of Jerusalem. And by deportation, it may not be deportation. It may be death. The uh, the Germans, who are the allies of the Turks and who have a tremendous presence in Jerusalem, German military presence in Jerusalem, are uh, aghast at what their Ottoman ally is willing to do or threatening to do. They think that he's gone you know, inhumane in the extreme. Now, when you say inhumane, and we're talking about the Germans being... Surprised by this and them being the humanitarians bear in mind that three very important Germans were in Jerusalem in 1916 1917 three what the first one is Franz von Papen who's Franz von Papen was the Chancellor before Hitler. And was the vice chancellor during the first year of the Nazi r- regime, between 33 and 34 until he was dismissed and became a, like an uh, ambassador to Austria. Uh, but, you know, he, although he was not a Nazi, he was a collaborator with the Nazi regime and was charged for war crimes after the war, although he was, he was not convicted. But to other people, the two Rudolfs, Rudolf Hess and Rudolf Hess, one spelled H-O-E-S-S and one spelled H-E-S-S. Who are the two Rudolphs? What did they later do in life? One is the one who parachuted into uh, well, it's Britain. Into Britain, right. So Rudolf Hess was the, was the vice-fuhrer, the number two man to Hitler, who was the Bissel Meschugger in the Keppelah. And he, uh, he took a plane in 1941 mm-hmm. and flew on a, a secret, unauthorized solo mission to England to negotiate with Churchill. He was promptly arrested and spent his last rest of his life in Spandau prison and died in 1987 at the age of 94, okay? The other one, Rudolf Haas, was the commandant of Auschwitz and basically is the murderer of over 2 million people uh, and was executed for his war crimes shortly after the war. So, yeah, weird situation of people who would go on to have these, you know, important roles in, in world history, but at the end of World War One, they're in the German army as low-ranking soldiers, young men, Uh, In Jerusalem, of all places, dealing with Jews. All right. And the Germans were the protectors of the Jews at a time when the Ottomans were getting overly aggressive and threatening uh, to commit atrocities. Did they get overly aggressive because they saw the? British handwriting on the wall? So several factors. Number one, there were spy systems, not only the newly spy system of the Aronson family up in the north, and uh, Nevei Yaakov, but uh, also there was there were spies in Jerusalem, like Alter Levine, uh, and there were also brothels, there were also spy hangouts. So a lot was going on in the city that was undermining Ottoman control, and the handwriting was on the wall that the British are coming. All right, well... While all this is going on, uh, Weitzman is pursuing his Balfour Declaration. He's doing his politicking in England, and he is successful at it. He's also thinking about establishing a Hebrew university, and the plans are already in motion. And we, We'll discuss. We'll spend the whole session discussing Harat Sophim Mount Scopus, and the history of Hebrew university. We'll spend some time on that. That's occurring 1916, 17, into 1918. But in the halls of power... In London, uh, David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of England, has a message for his general, for General Allenby. And that is, we want Jerusalem as a Christmas present. So here it is. It's getting close to the end of 1917. Uh, Mm -hmm. December 25th is is around the corner, Schöngekomen, you know. And so we want Jerusalem as a Christmas present. At that point, are the German soldiers already? Yeah, yeah, the Germans are suffering, and they're 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 uh, they're being stretched too thin. So British uh, British warplanes are bombing the Augusta Victoria Hospital on Mount uh, of Olives, and they're dropping opium laced cigarettes to get the German defenders of the city stoned, so they won't defend the city all that well. How do you like? It? You can't make that stuff up. All right. Well, eventually. Allenby conquers the city on December 8th. The the, the, uh, British soldiery can see the city from a distance on the night of December 7th. So December 7th, all right, 24 years before Pearl Harbor. uh, Tomorrow's the anniversary. And then by the morning of the 8th, the, the British are ready to conquer. The Germans fled. The last battle never really happened. I mean, there was fighting, sporadic skirmishes here and there. But basically, the Germans and the Ottomans fled. And it was up to the Husseini uh, mayor of the town to surrender Jerusalem to the conquering British. Well, this is a very important moment. I mean, after all, 700 years earlier, 800 years earlier, there were massive crusades for the sake of Christendom, taking the holy city from the Islamic world. And here it's happening. A Christian army, the British army, is taking Jerusalem from uh, the ottomans from a, from a muslim entity it's a sad day for the islamists it's a happy day for which residents of jerusalem the jews so number 1 the jews because they regard the british as liberators of some kind and also as a, as, as those who might advance zionism ever since the balfour declaration of a month earlier but who else thinks of it as a, a moment of liberation the, the christians the Christians, the American colony, all right, the the millenarian types, the the, uh, the apocalyptic types, and there were plenty of them all throughout the, the the city. They think this is great. A Christian entity is finally conquering the holy city of Jerusalem uh, from the from the hands of the infidel Muslims. But Didn't the Mufti have deals with the uh, British? The the the, the 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 Mufti did have deals with the British, and the Mufti was the uh, the. Um, uncle of the later mufti, who we regard a very negatively, Haj Amin. But the older mufti will die shortly thereafter, after this conquest, and the new guy, the young kid, will be appointed by Ronald Storrs, the military governor of Jerusalem, as the new mufti, and elevated to a very high position. Instead of just being the head of one scholarly branch of Islam, he'll be made the head of all of Islam in the whole country, and not just Jerusalem, but the entirety of Palestine. Uh, this despite the fact that he was young and never even got smicha, from the, from the Muslim University of Cairo. He was not, not properly ordained. He did not finish his religious studies. He was a young man, but he was a firebrand. And he was made in the early 1920s into this uh, big gadilla, you know, the khan gadol of Islam in Eretz Israel. Okay, but getting back to the conquest. So the mayor tries to surrender. He finds some Australian soldiers and tries to surrender to them, and they're too low-ranking, yeah, forget it, try to surrender to these people. He tries six times to surrender over the course of a day, and every who, everyone whom he encounters refuses to accept the surrender. What, if, what physical article is he using to try to carry out that surrender? A white bedsheet. Uh, he didn't have a flag, a white flag, as is the tradition in Western countries, but he knew that was the tradition. So he took a white bedsheet, even though the white bedsheet was actually a sign in Ottoman Jerusalem that this particular household has a virgin daughter ready to be married. So <laughs> it was a little bit of a mixed message, but he tried to surrender. Fine. The seventh time was the charm. He was finally able to hand over the keys to the city. Okay, very good. Well, when Alan B gets there, he was given instructions very uh, explicit instructions strongly suggest dismounting meaning don't be like the Kaiser who 20 years earlier had come in as though he was a conquering hero in 1898. And they knocked down part of the the old city wall uh, by the Jaffa gate to allow him to go on his horse on his literally high horse with his big helmet to get through. That was a lot of bravado, a lot of hubris, When you come to the city of Jerusalem, you have to be an anab, okay? You have to have humility, because it's the city of God, not your city. So he dismounts, he gets off his horse, and he walks through the gate. And he delivers his message of Jerusalem the Blessed in French, Arabic, Hebrew, Greek, Russian, and Italian. And he's very careful not to mention the word crusade. However, in his private discussion after the big public ceremony with Mayor Husseini. What did he say? The crusade is now over. So he did use that term. And that was not uh, well received by um, by the Husseini family and, and by the Muslims. Okay. well, as I mentioned before, the French had some sort of a claim on Jerusalem. And Mr. Picot tries to push the issue only to be told by Allenby, the only authority is that of the commander in chief myself. In other words, we the British one We have the boots on the ground. You don't. Go away. All right. The British wanted to have uh, some continuity in the manner of safeguarding the holy places, but also to display their rule over the holy places. So in particular, when it comes to the Temple Mount, Who can guard the Temple Mount and satisfy both of those considerations? No, the Jews would be a big problem. You can't have the Jews in the Temple Mount. Jordanians, well, you're on the right track. It has to be Muslims, but Muslims with an allegiance to the British Empire. Who are those? Egyptians. Indians. Indian Muslims, dark-skinned Indian Muslims became the, the guards on the, on the Har because it showed British control, but also was not insensitive to the, to the waqf, who did not want to have infidels on their holy space. Okay, well, the population of the city had shrunk very considerably over the course of the war. And, I mean, about 30,000 people left, and only about 55,000 remained when war ended. Or rather, when war ended in Jerusalem, because the war would continue for another 11 months until, you know, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. Um, And the city had a real problem. People were hungry. There was starvation. There were 3,000 Jewish orphans. Um, What do you do? I mean, there's venereal diseases rampant because there were problems with the brothels. It was a real problem in terms of public health and access to food and water. But fairly quickly, the city turned itself around. And right after the war, the cafes near Jaffa Gate were back in business. The dilettantes were talking and sipping coffee and tea and smoking uh, the hookah. So it was a tough time, 1917, 18 into 1919, but fairly quickly, order was restored and the economy uh, uh, is back on its feet. Well, Who comes in and takes the reins of the city? Answer, Ronald Storrs. Sir Ronald Storrs becomes the military governor of Jerusalem. He called himself the new version of Pontius Pilate. Hmm. Well, all right. I mean, I I don't know why he would use that expression about himself, but I understand Or he's the boss in Jerusalem. Um, Storrs regarded himself as born to rule over Jerusalem. And at first... He, um, he tried to be friendly with everybody. He was a little annoyed by the Zionists because they're always complaining and saying, oh, you're favoring the other guy. And he, he referred to it as a nightmare reflecting the Turkish proverb, the, the non-crying child gets no milk. That if you don't complain, you don't get the milk. So they're always complaining. Uh, he, but he was everyone's friend. And Ronald Torres then spoke to the prime minister Sort of kvetching, you know, the Arabs don't like me. The Jews don't like me. I'm trying to be everybody's friend, but neither side likes me. To which Lloyd George responded, well, if either one side stops complaining, you'll be fired. In other words, I want you to have both sides thinking that you're not with them. That you're, this way, you, you know you're even-handed. You're even-handed. Jerusalem saw quiet for the next two years. From Allenby's conquest in late 1917, up until April of 1920, about two and a half years of relative quiet. And during this time, the physical infrastructure of the city was dramatically improved. There was electrification, there were street lights put in. Okay, so it went from being a backward, technologically backward 19th century place to being at least an up-to-date early 20th century place. Okay, well, in 1918, as things are settling down and there's relative peace at least in this part of the country, it's Weizman's turn to make a big splash. What is the big splash? The laying of the foundation stones of Hebrew University on Mount Scopus. So the ceremony takes place July 24th, 1918. There's a big gathering. They drive them up in a Mercedes uh, to the top of the mountain, and all the dignitaries are there. Not much really happens. They make speeches, and that's that. The big gathering of six thousand people will take place in 1925 on April 13th when the university is opened officially. Then the chief rabbis will be there and the the, the high commissioner will be there. A big production. We'll talk about it when we discuss Matzokus. Okay. Um, we get now to the Nabi Musa riots. So when we when we spent a whole year discussing the history of zionism we spent a significant amount of time on these riots the 1920 riots in jerusalem that were the first outburst of muslim anti-jewish violence that gives us a flavor of what will happen going forward for the next 100 years that the the, the palestinian israeli conflict in its most uh, bloody uh, form has its origins here in 1920 although in 1929 it'll get you know obviously a lot worse but what happened? So, the Nabi Musa festival had 60,000 Arabs gathered uh, just outside the, the, the old city. And Hajamin al Husseini, who is the Mufti's younger brother, is out there screaming, Palestine is our land and the Jews are dogs. Uh, he's riling up the crowd to do something really vicious to whoever they can get. The crowd starts saying, Slaughter the Jews. Well, where are the cops? You know, where's the Jerusalem PD to intervene and protect innocent people from potential harm? The answer is that Ronald Stores has only 188 policemen in Jerusalem, 188 police in a city of uh, 90,000 people uh, where there's ethnic tensions and religious tensions is not nearly enough. They're not well enough uh, armed. So what are the Jews going to do? Are the Jews simply going to get themselves beaten up or are they going to find some way of self-defense or or a team defense? So most Jews don't know what's coming, but some have foresight and have been predicting that this kind of outburst of violence is likely to happen. Who am I referring to most specifically? Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky. So Jabotinsky is establishing the Haganah, The irony of ironies is that Javotinsky, who's the godfather of the Irgun, really is the founder of the Haganah in 1920 at the Nebuchadnezzar riots. Uh, But him and Pinchas Rutenberg, who's more famous for establishing the electricity plant at Machanaim, um, they get some guns and they want to walk around the street like a sort of a guardian angels type situation, preemptively looking dangerous so that the Arabs don't attack. However, stores banned this and he banned all patrols. So that was you know, bad news for the Jews. The other person who was involved... Not too many. About 200 Jews were volunteering to... you know, so it's, now, cops. it's not so simple. Because there's also the military that could come in and crush everyone. Uh, the, the military is located elsewhere and in Egypt, but they could be brought in as auxiliaries if need be. No, no. The Jews are spread out all over the city. Now, the other person who is involved in the, the defense of this city at this, this time is Nachem rubitsov Nachem rubitsov will eventually change his last name from rubitsov to Rabin. This is Yitzhak Rabin's father. He's married to Rose Rosa Cohen, or Red Rosa, because she was a real big kami. And Yitzhak Rabin was born in Jerusalem uh, in March of 1922. About a year, uh, two years later. So these, his parents were major figures in establishing defense organizations for this, for the Jews of Yerushalayim. Okay. Well, when the riots were over, what were the, what was the casualty count? There were five dead Jews, four dead Arabs, 200 injured Jews, 23 injured Arabs. Uh, People were tried and convicted for their part in the hostilities. Jews were put in jail. Arabs were put in jail. Bad scene. The Mufti was sentenced to um, to 10 years in prison, but he escaped. Jabotinsky was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but he was eventually pardoned. And in fact, the new Her- uh, high commissioner, Herbert Samuel, will pardon pretty much everybody who was involved in these activities. Herbert Samuel arrives as the high commissioner of Palestine. What's significant about his ethnic background? He's a Jew. All right, so a Jew is being appointed... By the British to run Eretz Israel, where is he going to have his headquarters? So the the uh, government house, at first during Samuel's administration, was at the Augusta Victoria Complex on top of Mount of Olives. However, later on, after he left the country, uh, and during the, the reign of his successors, the government house would be at Government House, known as Amon Ha Naziv, which is today a Jewish neighborhood. But between 48 and, and 67, it was a no man's land uh, between Israel and Jordan. But uh, today is, uh, you know, part of Jewish Jerusalem. During the, the the pre-state era, during the mandate era, that was a major, you know, edifice where the high commissioner would live. And you'd have a lot of his servants and his staff and this and that. OK, there was the civil administration was there as opposed to the military administration, which was located where? At the King David Hotel, which we'll get to eventually. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, when... When Samuel arrives, he is told by uh, the general who hands off the the mandate to him, "I give you one Palestine, complete, errors and omissions accepted." You <laughs> know, in other words, it's it's complete, it's whole, but we got problems here. We have problems on our hands. So, Why would they pick this guy, so he was a member of the British of the British cabinet. He was a good friend of of the prime minister. He was uh, at first. Um, a non-Zionist Jew, then he became an avowed Zionist in 1915. Uh, His selection, of course, offended the Arab population, but he did whatever he could precisely because he was a Jew and a Zionist to bend over backward to make it seem as though he was not uh, favoring Jewish interests. So from what do we learn from here? It's always better to have a good goy than to have sort of a a weak-kneed Jew. That if it was a Goy, he, he didn't have to bend over backwards. The Jews might have gotten better accommodations. But because it was Herbert Samuel, you know, he did whatever he did. Now, Herbert Samuel, when he came to Jerusalem, so he's not just a British official. He's also a a Jew. So what does he do? The first Shabbos that he's in town. Go he goes them. to the Churva synagogue and he gets maftir and he lands the Haftorah. Oh. How do you like that? That he he's he's a he's a, he's a not a, not a pious Orthodox Jew, but he was a, enough of a Jew that he could go to, to Shulam and read the Haftorah. Okay, well, we now get to um, Churchill's arrival in Jerusalem. So Churchill, who's now in the Colonial Office and will eventually become the Prime Minister two times over, uh, he shows up and he's opening up a British war cemetery on Mount Scopus and is declaring this or that, Churchill will do something very important in 1922 in issuing a white paper. Not the famous white paper of 39, but the white paper of 22, which does what? Who knows? It it, it chops off Jordan, Transjordan, from the Jewish national home. So Churchill is a Zionist by his own admission, but he does certain things that will offend the territorial maximalist among the Jews, not, notably the revisionists. Okay, so we now get to the Mandate period. Aver oh, Hayyardin. In Talmudic times, it was one of the three regions of so called Eretz Israel. There was, there was the Yehuda, the Galil, and Aver Hayyardin. It's not as holy as Cis Jordan, it's Trans Jordan. God, Reuven, and, been... and Hatzimanash. Okay, so we, we get to the Mufti and the Battle of the Wall. So the Mufti is a troublemaker, he's a Jew hater, and he's looking to uh, undermine British control and seize for whatever, whatever power he can for himself. So in our discussions of Zionism, we, we spent a lengthy period of time, and we'll discuss again, we get to the issues of the Kotel, the history of the Kotel, the, uh, the 1928 episode. Was, Where, that, was he still a mayor? Who? The, uh, Husseini? No, the Na- Nashashibi family took over the mayoralty. There were, there were shifts in administration. Uh, there was a desire not to have the mufti and the mayor be from the same family, but rather to share sort of an equitable distribution of the perks. So the Nashashibis were mayor, the Husseinis were the muftis. Okay, well, Viscount Plumer, who was the, uh, the new high commissioner, He walked around Jerusalem like he owned the place. He was not afraid of the political situation. He denied there was a political situation. And for a while, that may have been true. But in 1928 on Yom Kippur, violence breaks out at the Kotel. Why? Well, there's an effort to put up a mechitza, to have more of a synagogue apparatus there, which did not previously exist. The Kotel was just a place where Jews went to pray as individuals. If they were lucky, they could cobble together a minion, and if they were lucky, they could have a Torah scroll with a table to, to read it on. But there were no chairs, there was no machitza you couldn't have, you know, racks with sidurim and chumashim. There was no infrastructure of a synagogue. It was a makom kadosh, not a synagogue. Well, the British don't want any trouble. The muftis saying, oh, you can't have this, you can't have that. This is al-Burak territory from Muhammad's little uh, donkey uh, that, that he went up to Shemaim when he died. Um, the British banned the chauffeur. So the British are catering to the Arabs. And on Yom Kippur during the day, this how will happen Kalnidre night. The next day they come and beat up Jews. So this is not a good thing. And it's going to repeat itself around Tisha time on in 1929. So in the summer of 29, the Mufti makes things difficult for the Jews at the Kotel by opening up a, a, a roadway for donkeys and for passers-by with the muezzin calling for the chance of prayer up uh, right up above, so now you really can't daven well at the kotel because you have it's, it's a it's a trafficked road with animals and smell and sound. It was deliberately done to ruin the atmosphere of, of Jewish prayer. So on August fifteenth, Sammy he's gone. He left in nineteen twenty-five. Although he he lived a long life, he didn't die until nineteen sixty-five. He's one of these people who sort of outlives their role in history by a long shot. Okay, so, although the mufti is in the same category, the mufti died in 1974, okay, before my time, but you guys were around, 1974, he was out of the picture already for, you know, 30 years, but he was still around. So, on August 15th, 1929, there is a big demonstration led by Joseph Klausner at the Kotel, who is Joseph Klausner, a professor of Jewish history at Hebrew University, an expert on Josephus and on the the Jewish Jesus, he wrote the the Jewish Jesus of Nazareth, um, and then the Arabs riot, the Jews cause trouble, a Jewish boy is killed trying to retrieve a, a soccer ball, and lo and behold, August 23rd, there's an attack. The Arabs descend from Al-Aqsa, come to the to the Western Wall area, and many Jews are killed. The, the riots extend all over the suburbs, the, the new neighborhoods of Jerusalem, 31 Jews are killed in Jerusalem, and 67 Jews are killed in Hebron. This is we talk yeah. About the kotel, yeah, and we picture what we see today. Right. It was a narrow alleyway. It was hundred feet long and fifteen feet wide. Fifteen feet wide. At its widest, it was fifteen feet wide. We're we're gonna uh, we're gonna spend a whole session on the kotel. How the kotel became a place of Jewish worship, and how it evolved spatially over time. Okay. Well, why did the twenty nine riots? Um, get so out of hand that so many Jews died in Jerusalem and elsewhere in the country. Because there only were 292 police officers in the entire country. The British had 292 officers for the whole country. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to be enough. So the Jews had their Haganah, which did well in certain places, but not in other places. Notably in Hebron, where they really really were not present. Were there any reins put on the British officers as far as uh retaliation also? Yes, that's another problem. That the British did not act as hastily as they could have to nip in the bud uh anti-Jewish violence. Uh there was certainly the the, 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 the ability to reduce the casualty count that didn't occur. All right. Now after this You have the Passfield White Paper, which restricts Jewish immigration. This was an attempt by the British to placate the Arabs. This was rescinded in 1931 with the Black Letter, uh, which basically the British caved into Weitzman and said, we'll allow Jewish immigration. So Jewish immigration continues. And the Nazi regime in Germany means that immigration will be on the upswing, on the uptick. Uh, Very substantial numbers of Jews are coming to Eretz Israel, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37. And this will have a significant impact on the life of Jerusalem Jewry and Jerusalem as a whole, because the population will swell, right? What's going on in Jerusalem? Hadassah Hospital is built. The Rockefeller Museum is built. King George Street is built. The shops along uh, um, Ben Yehuda come into existence. So the 1920s and 1930s, but especially the 1930s, is a time of growth in the city, growth of entertainment venues, of economic prospects, uh, cultural institutions, religious institutions. We're going to speak about these, some of them in, in, in special sessions about uh, individual places. They were insulated from the Depression. Okay, so the Depression did not play as big a role in Eretz Yisrael or in Jerusalem as it did elsewhere. They were not totally insulated, but the, um, the Yishuv had its own economic up and down. The Yishuv did great part of the Roaring Twenties, 24 to 27. It had a little downturn, 27 to 29, which was before the Depression elsewhere. It had a bit of an upswing in the early 30s. Just the increase in population meant the growth in the economy. Um, so during the, uh, the, the darkest days of the Depression in the United States, the economy was not horrific uh, in Eretz Israel or in, in Jerusalem. Okay, so now let's go to luxury accommodations. The King David Hotel is built in 1930. Who builds the King David Hotel? So an Anglo-Jewish financier, Frank Goldsmith, and wealthy Egyptian Jews, they build this building. People thought it was the new base Hamikdash. Um, w- why? Well, every modern city... Requires modern accommodations to attract the wealthy clientele, the royals. And it should be noted that during World War II, a lot of deposed royals and deposed heads of state and prominent individuals found their way in Jerusalem. Uh, Ex kings, uh, uh, former kings, abounded in the in in the streets of Jerusalem and in the fancy hotels. Between 39 and 45. Okay. Uh, this meant that the city was now a destination for the rich Arabs of Lebanon and Egypt. That, you know, Beirut has its own fancy places, but uh, you know, Beirut doesn't compare to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it's a holy city. When toasting the, the, the people present at a gathering in the 1930s, on the, on the porch, on, the, on the, the balcony of the King David Hotel one night. So the uh, person making the toast had to say the following, your excellency, your honor, your beatitudes, your eminences, your lord bishops, your paternity, your reverence, your worship, ladies and gentlemen. In other words, all the machers were there, whining and dining on the balcony of the King David Hotel. By 1931, Jerusalem had 132,000 residents. It's pretty big. It's the biggest city in the country. Uh, and the Jewish population is by far the majority, by far the majority. But the Arab families, the Palestinian families, uppercase F, will be living high in the hog. They're doing fabulously well for themselves. They're sending their kids to uh, British, English language schools in Jerusalem, and when they graduate from those schools, they send them to Oxford. Okay, so the, the, the fancy Arabs are doing fabulously well and educating their children in British institutions. Uh, Every neighborhood during this interwar period has its own flavor to it. So, Rachavia is the place for the secular German professors who work at Hebrew U. Also for British officials, because it's a fancy neighborhood. Uh, It's the most desirable place to live. It looks like a European place. The Bukharians live in the Bukharian Quarter. The Hasidim live in Meir Zichron Zion is the poor Ashkenazim. Talpiot is like a Berlin garden suburb. Every neighborhood had its own flavor. Okay, it was a cosmopolitan Jerusalem, and a Weitzman referred to Yerushalayim of the interwar period as a modern-day Babel in the sense that many different languages, many different styles of people are all there together. It was an exhilarating place to live. There was a real blend of many, many cultures. No Well, let's now go to when the problems get off the ground in earnest. So between 29 and 36, there isn't that much violence in Palestine. There's a little bit here and there, certainly in the north north and in the the coastal plain area. You'll have occasional, uh, you know, bad interaction between Arabs and Jews. But in the city of Jerusalem, you don't have major riots for a good seven years. And that's an important thing. It allows the population to be absorbed and for people to feel relatively safe. But on a night in early 1936, shots are fired and the Arab revolt begins. This Arab revolt will last for how many years? About three. So 39. It's on and off, sporadic. So there'll be months when nothing happens. But for a three-year stretch, you have... Arabs attempting to undermine British rule and to kill as many Jews as possible. All right. Well, uh, the British respond to these riots by recognizing that they have to think about the political future of Palestine. And they send a commission known as the Peel. Peel Commission for Sir Robert Peel to investigate what the situation should be. And the Peel proposal favored the Arabs tremendously. Uh, the Jews were only going to get a little rump state in the Galilee and along the, the coastal area up as far as Tel Aviv and maybe down to Rehovot with the Arabs getting a corridor to Jaffa and the international zone to Jerusalem, to the coast. Um, but the Arabs get the rest of the country. So the, the Arabs win in this scheme. And yet... At that time, there were many Jews the so the Jews are only a third of the inhabitants of the country, if that many. But they want to be much more because they want immigration, unfettered immigration. The problem is that the British limit immigration to the so-called absorptive capacity of the country. Now, there's a machlokis. What is the absorptive capacity? You could give a low number. You could give a high number. Obviously, the Jews would give a high number and say, we can handle all these people. Bring them on. Keep them coming. And the the British say, no, 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 no. It's too much. We don't want to have the country overrun. Now, what happens... Jews and the war is not going on yet. This is 36, 37. The Jews are coming in large numbers. So nine days after the Peel proposal, the Mufti calls on the German consul general in Jerusalem to say that he has sympathy with the Nazis and wants to cooperate cooperate with them. The British try to arrest him, but he flees into the Al-Aqsa mosque as a sanctuary. Well, the British don't want to cause a big ruckus by storming the Temple Mount and raiding Al-Aqsa. So, what do they do? They just sort of besiege him. He has to hang out there for a while. Like, uh, what's that guy uh, who hangs out in the embassy in England? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, in Jerusalem, the Arab revolt is led by Abd al Husseini, a 30 year old guy, member of the Husseini family, and he is their hero. What ends up happening to him, do you know? He dies in April of 1948 in the battle at the Castel. And the relevance of his death is that together with Deir Yassin, that results in what? The massacre of the doctors and nurses of Hadassah Hospital on the Mm -hmm. way to Mount Scopus. So Abdul Qadir Husseini gets his fame by leading the Jerusalem Brigade in the Arab Revolt. And he's causing a lot of trouble. So the British realize they got to beef up their police presence. They can't just have, you know, chaos forever and ever. So they bring in Sir Charles Teggart, who uh, comes from Calcutta, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he establishes a training institute where you teach interrogators how to beat up a suspect to extract information from him. That Military intelligence and police intelligence is critical in stamping out an insurgency. That's the counterinsurgency. So what method does he advise Waterboarding. Oh. Long before there was Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld in, in Iraq, there was Sir Charles Teggart in Jerusalem teaching how to do waterboarding. 1937. His more important contribution was that they built for, 50 Teggart forts throughout the country, which were British police installations that remained in place until 1948. During the War of Independence, what would happen? Every one of those forts was a place where the Jews wanted it and the Arabs wanted it. They would clash to see who could get it first as the British were evacuating. Okay. Huh? Usually on high places. Correct. Yeah. Now, who else comes to Jerusalem? Not just Sir Charles Taggart, but also Ord Wingate. Ord Wingate is the Lawrence of Judea. You know, there's Lawrence of Arabia because he loved the Arabs and there's Ord Wingate who loved the Jews. So he comes to Jerusalem Lawrence of Judea, and what's his contribution going to be? Well, he's going to establish the night squads. The night squads are groups of trained armed Jews who, with the permission of the British, are going around trying to quell this Arab rebellion. Um, Ord Wingate sets up his uh, headquarters at the Fast Hotel near the Jaffa Gate. He learns fluent Hebrew and then moves into a house in Talpiot. Uh, He was a really loony guy. He used to sit around naked, smoking a cigarette, reading books and talking to people like he was a bizarre character. But he was a lover of the Jews. All right. Well, um, we'll take what we can get. Now, in September of 1938, things get a little dicey in Jerusalem. What happens? The Arab rebels take over the old city. They conquer the old city the British presence is ousted, and for two days, Jews in the old city are harassed and threatened with death and, and destruction, although in the, ultimately, no, I don't think anybody got, uh, um, uh, got killed among the Jews, but the British have to reconquer the old city, and on October 19th, they come in guns blazing, and they kill about 20 Arabs in the process, so this is a little bit unsettling, the idea that the British control is so weak that at any given moment they could lose their power over this swath of territory. From a Jewish perspective, that's uh, you know, not, not too good. All right. Well, when the revolt was over, what was the casualty count throughout the country? 500 dead Jews, 150 dead Britons. But the terrible toll was mostly on the Arabs. The Palestinian Arabs were, were devastated by this, uh, th- this revolt. About 10% of their male population either died or was, were, was exiled. And all the leadership was, was killed off, which meant that in 1948, they didn't have real military leadership that could, could bring them to victory. They had uh, you know, third-rate leadership, and they lost. You know, the Jews el- elevated themselves and trained and, and, and armed themselves. The Arabs, they, they had their chance, and they blew it. Okay. So, the White Paper of 1939, the White Paper of 39, has a tremendous impact on the city of Jerusalem. What happens? It's released in March, and 15,000 Jews will be allowed into Eretz Israel every year for the next five years. So, 75,000 Jews between 39 and 44, and subsequent to 44, all Jewish immigration will be subject to Arab approval. Meaning, it isn't going to happen. All right, and this is right at the beginning of the Shoah. So just when the Jews need a safe haven most, they're not going to have one. The reaction of the chief rabbi of Israel, of chief rabbi of Palestine, Yitzhak Isaac HaLevi Herzog, okay, the father of President Chaim Herzog, the grandfather of current President Isaac Herzog, who's named after his grandfather, was to take the white paper, a copy of it, and tear it at a big rally, okay, uh, he was in Ireland before he came to Israel. He came to Israel after Rav Cook died. I think in 1936 he came to Israel. Rav Cook died in 35. And he was chief rabbi from 36 to 59 when he passed away. So this tearing of the of the white paper was the example followed by his son Chaim who tore what The Zionism is Racism Decree, 1975 at the UN, on Kristallnacht, November 9, 10, 1975, Chaim Herzog tears the the, the UN Declaration. He learned from his father, who tore the white paper in Jerusalem. Well, Ben-Gurion prepares the Haganah for war against the British. The Haganah is ready to go to war against the British over the issue of immigration. Immigration is the be-all and end-all. And the Jews' riot in Jerusalem. So normally when you think of riots, you think of the Arabs, the Goyim. Here the Jews riot in Jerusalem. On June second, what do they do when they riot? They destroy, the des- d- destroy property, uh, you know, throw things at British installations. They be, are they destroying the British, stuff? British, British not their own stuff. Arab not the, the, no the, the Jews have a seichel. they don't destroy don't their know, own Arab stuff. They, they, they have destroy have British stuff, Arab stuff. Yes. Okay. Now, so on June 2nd, the Irgun sets off a bomb in the marketplace outside the Jaffa gate, killing nine Arabs. And on uh, June 8th, uh, the Irgun knocks out electricity all throughout the city with 14 explosions around the transformers and uh, electrical facilities of the town. So here, Yerushalayim had electricity. I mean, your average person could turn on the lights, but the infrastructure was exposed, and the Irgun, boom, bombs. All right, so this is seven years before they blow up the King David Hotel. They're already bombing the uh, utility infrastructure of the city. Who was there the night that the Irgun bombs, the, the, turned the lights off on Yerushalayim? John F. Kennedy. Who is John F. Kennedy? The son of the ambassador of the United States to England, Joseph Kennedy, just happened to be uh, on, a, uh, on a tour of the east and he saw the Irgun in action okay so sometimes random people who play an important role later in history find themselves in Jerusalem at moments of historic significance happens all the time happens all the time okay well during the war between 39 and 41 Jerusalem was strangely quiet why was it quiet Well, there was peace and prosperity because the war is not nearby. The war is taking place in Africa, in Europe, in the Far East, but it's not happening in Eretz Israel. And the British who control the country are building up the defense industries and giving jobs to people. So the economy is rolling. It's doing really well. Everybody's employed. The British... Are able to keep the peace by cracking down on the militias, Arabs, certainly, who already were crushed, but even the Jews. So the Haganah and Moshe Dayan are all arrested and put in jail in Acre Prison. But what happens? In May of 1941, the British have a change of heart. They recognize that this part of the world is not so free and clear, that there is the possibility of Palestine being uh, attacked from two different sides. The Vichy allied Arabs, so Vichy France, which controls Syria and Lebanon, has pro-Nazi elements that are fighting on on the northern border of Palestine. Arab irregulars, European soldiers, and that's a real danger. And then Rommel Okay, the Africa Corps is sweeping across North Africa. They overrun British garrisons at Tobruk, and it was not until the Battle of El Alamein in 1942 when Eretz Israel finally was regarded as safe. But for a good year or so, there was the threat that the Jews of Eretz Israel would die in the Shoah. Okay, that the Holocaust would reach Eretz Israel. So what happens? The Haganah fighters, including the Jerusalem branch, are released from their captivity. They're given weapons and some training, and they're sent off to fight. And who loses an eye? Moshe Dayan goes off to Lebanon and loses an eye. Okay. Well, as I mentioned, what's happening in the city during the war? You know, there are all sorts of VIP refugees and asylum seekers, including George the, King George II of Greece, Peter of Yugoslavia, Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, all right? Uh, and all, a host of other people who making Jerusalem home. Uh, one of the problems that the military governor of Jerusalem had during the war was the bad behavior of Australian soldiers. They uh, were too rowdy and were contract, contracting venereal disease at too high of a rate. The, the health was was being compromised by, uh, by their brothels. Okay. Um, in November of 1942... After the threat to Eretz Israel has dissipated, the news comes to Jerusalem that there is mass murder of Jews in Europe. So there's the Regner Cable, there's Stephen Wise. The word gets out, New York Times articles. The Western public, the public at large, knows that there's the Shoah happening. So the response was for the chief rabbis to, to call for three days of Avelus, three days of mourning, and culminating in a, a tefillah, Siburit, the public prayer at the Kotel. Huh? So in late November of 42. Okay. Well, at this point, the, the war is coming to an end, 1944, 45. And I want to stop here because I, I, don't, I don't want to get us into uh, issues of, um, of uh, terrorism in Yerushalayim. But suffice it to say that The attitude of Ben-Gurion during the war was we'll fight the war like there's no white paper and we'll fight the white paper like there's no war. Before the war broke out between the British and the Germans, it was just we'll fight the white paper. The British are in control. We want to immigrate. So we'll do what we can to undermine their authority. But once the war begins, your ultimate enemy is Nazi Germany. You can't uh, be full force against the British. You have to balance these various needs. So balancing fighting the Nazis with resisting the white paper. How will that affect Jerusalem in the long run? It will affect Jerusalem in the long run because Jews will volunteer in fairly large numbers to fight in the British army. And that uh, soldiery, about 26,000 Jews who fight for the British in the, in the war, come from, from Eretz Israel Jewry, they will form the nucleus of the IDF. But even before the IDF is established on June 1st, 1948, these people come home when the war is over, and they're going to engage in anti-British activity to try to undermine the mandate to bring about the establishment of a Jewish state. And much of the activity is going to happen in Jerusalem. Yes, there will be the Acre prison break. There will be the, uh, the hanging of British officers in the Orange Grove. There will be stuff that happens elsewhere in the country. You know, the, the landing of the Exodus, but most of the, the violence and um, the aggressive tactics that lead to the departure of the British happen where? In Jerusalem which is going to force the British to establish a defensive posture in the city that makes much of the city into a no-go zone. So we'll stop here. Next week, uh, two weeks from now, we'll discuss 1945 through 1948, what happens in the city, and we'll spend maybe 20 minutes on that. And then the rest of the the session, we'll discuss what was life like in the divided Jerusalem of 48 through 67. We're not going to discuss the war, the nitty gritty details of the war. We've done that in past uh, years. We discussed the military history of Israel. So we'll discuss 45 to 48 and then 48 through 67. After we get through that, we'll be done with our chronological history of the city and for the next Ten sessions after that, we'll do specific locations, the history of specific locations. Okay, we'll stop here. A good night to one and all. When did Begin get to Israel?